Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. John Bonnet started out as a news journalist, writing about politics and the airline industry before falling in love with wine, where he made his name covering the California beat at the San Francisco Chronicle. I caught up with John to talk about his remarkable new book, The New French Wine, discussing terroir, appellations, and what he calls the simmering revolution that's changing the world's greatest wine culture. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Tim? Um, really well. It's lovely to hear your voice. Oh, you're not in Paris by any chance, are you? Uh, not, not yet. I'll be there uh, over the weekend. I'm envious, deeply envious, eating lots of good food, drinking lots of good wine. You've probably been mobbed in the street now that you've published this book because it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, yeah, being mobbed in the street uh, in France in 2023 is not necessarily something you want. But <laughs> no. um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the French are very good at uh, stoicism when they need it. That's very true. Um, listen, you were born in New York, but you were brought up in Westchester County, yeah, to the north of the city. I just wondered where the wine was a bit of your life growing up, because your dad was kind of a trained chef, wasn't he? Yeah, he had a he had an unusual career. He was uh, both a corporate executive, uh, but also was trained as a chef. Uh, and um, I actually grow, grew up for a good part of my childhood in, in New York City. Um, and then uh, we moved out to Westchester and he decided that banking was not perhaps his life's work. Um, and so uh, began selling a lot of gourmet foods and doing catering. And uh, so we, we drank a lot of wine when I was a kid. And I mean that literally a kid, um, uh, you know, different times in the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, would had um, all the sort of fancy French cheeses and, you know, the first real baguettes you could get in New York. And uh, so it was it was just around. It was ambient, if you will. Um, and I didn't think much of it aside from all the kids thinking that my father was weird. Uh, and I mean, literally would, you know, they you know, they would they would mock me and my sister by saying that our father was the deli man, which, you know, which is not the which is a sobriquet now that would be like to now it would be an honorific, but at the time it was meant to be an insult. Um, <laughs> and was was it your I mean your, your dad introduced you to French culture, including obviously food and wine. And I mean I read somewhere in the book where you're talking about this epic trip you went on, you know, age thirteen. It looks amazing. You kind of covered the entire country, didn't you? We covered an enormous amount of it, yeah. Um not that I necessarily knew exactly what that meant at the time, you know, going to Vouvray for a lovely seafood lunch, uh, staying in Saint-Emilion overnight, uh, I don't think quite resonated. Although e- even then, I think at that point, I had some sense of this is, th- these were, these were meaningful places, uh, certainly to my father, like Saint-Emilion, like I had sure that I had tasted the wines by that point and we tasted them there. And he was very, very excited to visit Priore Lachine um, for reasons unknown to me, but... <laughs> Uh, well, Alexis was there, was he or not in those days? I really? rather doubt it. <laughs> I think the tour, the tour guide was there, you know, with the Mickey Mouse ears. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this was the late, late stage Alexis, maybe. But, um, but yeah, so it's, I mean, it, it was, it was enormously fortunate. Uh, and I don't even think I 
fully understood the importance of uh, of it at the time, but to to get a sense of um, of France, this this snapshot in the kind of early mid eighties uh, was really extraordinary. And, and did you learn to speak French as a kid? I did, uh, but not. I mean, my my father was a francophile, but he's not French. Uh, so um, so yes, but I started in uh, in middle school basically, and then took the ten years of it. And, and, and then you became a journalist. And I, one of the things I like very much about your writing is that you write exceptionally about wine, but you're more than a wine writer. You're a journalist and you think about wine, I, I think, as a, as a journalist. Can you just tell us a little bit about your early days as a as a reporter, really, on MSNBC in Seattle? Because you didn't start out writing about wine, did you? I did not. Um, this is also a huge compliment from the person who wrote uh, The New Beaujolais back 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 in the mists of time for Savoir, which which to me, it's funny, it was this this uh, this emblem of really remarkable wine writing that uh, oh, thank you. threw shade on everyone else for a while. So um, thank you. It <laughs> means a ton. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I started uh, I started with journalism when I was in uh, in college and working for um, the local public radio station and for the associate press and some other places um, went off and kind of got into the internet and then decided I missed journalism, came back, worked for a number of places, uh, helped build courttv.com. And then, yeah, ended up at MSNBC uh, on both coasts, um, covering everything in the world but wine, Uh, sort of politics, the environment, uh, drug policy, uh, the airline industry, you name it. Uh, And then um, actually sort of transitioned to become more of a business reporter uh, after 9-11 uh, or after, you know, a couple years of the war after 9-11. Um, it was getting tiring to, to do general news uh, and had was living in Seattle and was getting into the wine, uh, the wine scene there, which uh, obviously is very strong in imports, but also Washington had a, a really robustly growing uh, wine industry at the time. And started sneaking wine into my stories and food into my stories and eventually went to my editor and suckered him into letting me write a wine column. And then honestly built a beat that was the, um, the business and science of food and wine. Mm. So, you know, got to write about wine, but also got to write about mad cow disease. (laughs) Sounds brilliant. And and then you got the job on the San Francisco Chronicle, didn't you? um, You were offered two different jobs, weren't you, writing about wine? I mean, those are the days. These days, you'd like to get offered (laughs) one, thank you. Things that will never happen again. (laughs) Yeah, on the same day, got uh, two job offers. One one as the wine editor and chief critic of the wines at the San Francisco Chronicle, and one as a wine editor uh, at uh, Food and Wine magazine, Hmm. uh, which, yeah, that, that will... That day will never repeat itself in my or anyone else's life. <laughs> or any, yeah, exactly. Unique, I think. Yeah. Um, what, what was the California wine industry like in the early 2000s when you started? You know, was it all about the, that lovely WH Auden line, you know, the language of size? And I think you called it big flavor, which I like very much. Yeah. I mean, was that what it was like in those days when you started? It was. It was. And uh, on, upon reflection, I'm not entirely sure what uh, compelled me to want to go cover California wine at that time, aside from maybe a, a general need to, to be a malcontent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, it was it's interesting. That was I would say that was the last that was the late decadent part of the Robert Parker era. Or that mm-hmm. that whole it's I think it's a little unfair to put it on 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 Bob like of of yes what what I called the era of big flavor which was mm-hmm. you know there there was I think a number of different voices uh, really pushing for this this max 
this maximalist view of what wine should be. And uh, by that point, you know, the the big vintages had come and gone, the 97, mm-hmm. uh, sort of 97, 98, 99, 2000, in which it was made unabashedly clear what style of wine you were supposed to be making and what would yeah. happen to you if you were, say, Tim and Dobby and you, uh, you know, the way the way Parker viewed it, you you chose to defy what nature had given California. So so I showed up in this moment where I think, you know, the, the the there was this sense of what what California wine quote unquote should taste like, but I think there was this this sort of this seed of of discontent mm-hmm. with where it had gone and and frankly the ways in which the the industry had had calcified and and also just lost track of of the the innovation and the energy that uh, that had made California so vital. And I mean, that's obviously changed now, hasn't it? I mean, I mean, there's still those wines exist, but but lots of other styles too. I mean, and you had a big role in changing that, I think, through the column. You know, it's a very red column, certainly was at the time. And of course, that wonderful book, you know, the New California Wine. Are, are you kind of proud that you think, hey, I helped change this a bit? You know, just you just bring the dial back slightly. Yeah, uh, you know, I I think um, I have uh, I think I have fully enjoyed that I had um, a modest role in that. Uh, you know, I, 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 over time think that I have come to appreciate just how many people it took and how it was a very broad based, um, decision, I guess, or, or realization that, that things needed to change. I'm, I'm glad if I got to, you know, throw a few sparks on the fire and, you know, prod it, you know, help build it up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 it's interesting because, you know, at the time I caught no amount of crap for, for doing that, but in the end, it's been fascinating to see where that trajectory has gone. And, um, you know, if, 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 you know, love being a catalyst for it in some way. Uh, but I think the, 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 the big thing to me was that, uh, it was, a, it was California going back and really discovering its full diversity and, and all the things it could do. But B, I think it was this this moment of realizing that um, that this arc that wine had gone on starting in, let's say, late 70s, early 80s, had really played itself out. Um, and, and that's germane because that was happening not only in California, but as I would eventually discover, that was happening in France. And to be fair, in, in lots of other places as well. I mean, lots of the places I write about, you know, Argentina and Spain and Chile have, have all been through that process, that sort of funnel, if you like, where they just saw the funnel getting narrower and narrower and narrower and thought, shit, you know, the, where do we go with this? I, mean, I like to think there are lots of wine writers who've had a bit of an impact on that. And, you know, sommeliers and importers and, you know, there are there are, there are thousands of people, frankly. But let, let's talk about the new French wine, because it's, it's a monumental piece of work. I mean, it just makes me terrified looking at it and reading it i mean it's also a thing of, of incredible beauty you know the photo is lovely photographs mostly i think by Susanna island yeah. i just when did you have the idea because i think you had it in a, in a wine bar somewhere didn't you and you probably immediately regretted it i don't know <laughs> pretty much yeah. <laughs> um yeah i mean the uh, you know i i had some sense in my in my brain that that i needed to look at the old world and i mm. started to put together a proposal this was let's say 2014 so mm. new california was out and of course mm. The moment you release a book, then the next the next question is, well, what what are you what are you tackling after this? Uh, but um, but I had some sense, but then yeah, I was I was drinking with my editor um, in a wine bar in in Oakland, uh, and you know 
probably one one glass or two too many uh, too far into the night. And she was like, well, what about France? And I, I think it just it, it just galvanized where my brain had been. And I was like, yeah, sure. Fuck it. Let's do it. Um, and, uh, you know, and. I don't know if the regret came the next morning so much as uh, when I actually began to have to put the proposal together and <laughs> realized that this was potentially going to be a, a big thing. But 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 even so, I you know when 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 I talked about it with Emily, who was my editor at the time, and I was starting to think about it, like I was I was thinking about the the new the new French wine, so to speak, like very much being on the fringes, and mm. you know sort of some Van de France and the people who are, you know, maybe natural, but kind of working around the fringes and, and, and the edge and um, this being in the, the unknown corners of France, you know, somewhere in a, in a, uh, you know, in a hobbit hole in the Auvergne, there would be magic. <laughs> um, and, you know, when, when, when I, I honestly, like, I don't even know that it fully set in when we signed the contract. Uh, and I, I thought this will be, you know, this will be a tidy two year project, you know, I'll and really it was play. nine, wasn't it? Uh, a little over eight. Yeah. So, yeah, though, um, so yeah, little, little bigger than I thought. <laughs> and, and how well did, how well did you know France at that point? So on, <laughs> On the one hand, I knew France really well, mm. uh, which is to say, you know, I had a very firm grasp of, you know, the major and minor appellations. I, you know, had at least, you know, a a functional grasp on Burgundy. Uh, I had as much of a grasp on Bordeaux as I probably needed to. Or wanted to have, probably. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, but I, I mean, again, like th- there was a lot of, I mean, I had championed a lot of, you know, sort of lesser known French wines over time. I was a complete freak for Jurançon and would always try to sneak it into the paper. Mm. Uh, didn't matter. You could say the nicest things in the world about Jurançon and no one would drink it. Um, so with, I mean, I will drink it to, to the, to the people of Jurançon, I will drink it all. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, it, but so, so it was one of these things where I, I had a very good sort of working knowledge and what I would say, and, and, and to me, this is important because I think, folks who really want to learn about wine, clearly there's a book they can read now that will tell mm-hmm. them everything. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but, but, but what, I, what I realized after I did two or three trips was that, you know, all of the, all of the book learning and all of the, you know, the, the ways that people tend to absorb this information were, were not quite giving me the full picture. Mm-hmm. As much as I thought I could sort of breeze my way through it, there was going to be, a for me a lot more work, but B that that I I wasn't I wasn't quite seeing either what was really going on mm. in the different wine regions, mm. but also I you know the um that there was um there's just a texture to what the way that wine is made in France and the way mm. that 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 vignerons live their lives that I think often doesn't get translated out uh, in in the sense that you know. The, the and the, and to, let's be clear the french are the absolute worst perpetrators of this the but the so much of the the popularity of the 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 joy of french wine hinges on the myths that are created around mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and i think i like pretty much anyone else had you know had absorbed them and they're they're lovely and they help explain why terroir matters and they help explain why we drink Cru Beaujolais or we drink, uh, you know, Mont Louis or, or whatever it is. Uh, but, 
but actually going and, and kind of digging into it, I think there was this realization that there was a lot of meat there that, that again, just there's, there's no, there's no shortcut to it. That, that, that hadn't that hadn't been covered properly basically the people weren't doing doing the hard yards right some of it i think it's i mean first if you if you think about the way that that even most wine writers get to to mm. to, to approach france like um they will either go on a trip organized by a winery mm. or by a regional trade group and so uh, as the book gets gets into the the dirt of like the problem with the syndica and and, and the trade groups is that they are deeply political organizations. Yeah. Uh, they are very committed to telling a certain version of the truth. Mm. And so, I mean, look, this is this is the financial reality of wine writing for a very long time now, uh, is you are, you know, anyone is, is more than likely going to have to go and be sort of taken around to see a particular version mm. of the world. Mm. Uh, and um, that mostly just because I'm a malcontent has never been my thing. Um, and I, and I apparently like to, to, you know, to lose money and be poor and, and not let anyone pay for me. That's why we all become journalists. Right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I love the thing in the intro. We talk about the France being in the midst of a simmering revolution. I, I just wondered when you think that revolution started and what, what was it revolting against, if we can use that term? Yeah. Uh, the French, yes, we can say the French know, are revolting. We know that. Say, you know, the, the quintessential Anglophone joke: the French are revolting. <laughs> um, but um, so you know, it's it's a little difficult to put a um, an exact pin on it. I I would say that the seeds of it certainly were in the late nineties, but but really extending into the first years of the millennium, mm. uh, and 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 the first decade of the millennium. And as with California, I think what was beginning to happen was this realization that the the internationalist era of wine where, you know, more was more, mm. oak was good, mm. you know, everything was supposed to be polished and cold soaked and de-stemmed mm. and, mm. you know, buffed up and, and mm. sort of the, the cosmetic surgery version of wine mm. was a just lo- losing favor and people weren't that interested. And, and I think the French were beginning to realize to your point that, you know, tasting like Argentina isn't actually yeah. uh, the goal, unless you're in Caor and then you're just obsessed with... Or, or unless you're in Argentina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I think that was part of it. and But also the, the fact that, you know, what, what made French wine great was the fact that it wasn't like other wines mm-hmm. and that, um, that there was... Had, there had been a great, great narrowing re- really since, I mean... At the very least, since World War II, but but to some extent since since Phylloxera, uh, what the full potential of French wine was, mm-hmm. and I think uh, there was again a sense that wine was changing. You know, natural wine, even if it didn't have a name yet per se, um, was was a notion that had had bubbled up in the eighties, and I think was starting to catalyze. And I think there were just in every region and, and in different ways. Uh, there were vignerons who realized that uh, that the path to the future um, was was different than what had been proposed, sort of the mm. twenty years pa- uh, previous. Uh, but also that, to to a large extent, that um, again, as in California, as in many other places—Spain, Italy, and so on—like the the path to the future was very much written in the past. Yeah. It's funny, I remember Michel Roland, you know, the perfectly nice person, once saying to me, when a vigneron says to me, I do exactly the same things as my grandfather father did, I want to throw him in the Gironde. And I thought, well, actually, 
the guy's right. Probably the things that his grandfather did were probably pretty sensible, not just in terms of agriculture, but the way they made the wines. You know, and I think, as you said, it was that glossiness, that 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 attempt to airbrush things and 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 buff them up and give them Botox in a sense that 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 that, that detracted from those wines. It's interesting you talk, and I think rightly, about France as being the soul of the global wine industry. You know, it's a signifier in a sense. Uh, can you see that role being challenged or, or, or superseded? I mean, is, is France as relevant now as it was, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago or more? It's interesting. I, 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 spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, that phrase and also uh, the subtitle of the book, which hmm. is uh, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture, which is a bold statement. Um, and to be Why fair, not? Go for it. That, yeah, to be fair, <laughs> one that my editor actually uh, proposed and I, I wholeheartedly signed on to. Um, but... You know, in a way, not to split the difference, but there is a way in which France does not have the primacy that it once did, which is to say that there was a time that a lot of the mid-grade wines of the world or of of the wine market Mm. were being filled by France. There was, Mm. let's say, Macon wines Mm. that, you know, if you were looking for white wine or some sort of Chardonnay that wasn't uh, Cote de Bonne, Mm. you would go to the Macon. If you wanted Riesling, you would largely go to Alsace or you, you know, go to Alsace for sort of aromatic wines or you'd go to the Rhone if you wanted sort of big, juicy, sunny red wine. Uh, And, you know, the, where I think, the rest of the world has really filled in the pieces is in that, that great middle. Um, and to some extent, uh, the, the, the bottom of the market as well in that the, uh, there is no question that the French have sort of have lost the battle for cheap wine, which mm. is not a bad battle to lose mm. unless you're in the Languedoc, I guess. Mm. But, uh, but so, so on one hand, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that dominance in the sense that other countries have come in to take on, to take, to take bits and pieces, mm. but when it actually comes to references mm-hmm. and to the wines that I think still remain benchmarks, remain remain the templates, and and I mean this in a very little literal way, in the sense that this is not to dimi- you know to, to diminish Pinot Noir grown anywhere else, but literally you cannot not trace Pinot Noir back to France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is something, it is effect- effectively indigenous to France. It is indigenous mm-hmm. to Burgundy. It is like Chardonnay. It is a grape whose whose origins are very clear. Mm-hmm. And so sa- same with Cabernet, uh, you know, Cabernet being a slightly strange grape, having to have so much popularity only in that uh, its roots are far more humble than the, than the Bordelais would, I think, like to admit. But so these, these, these wines, I mean, you know, when you look at Napa Cabernet, when you look at, let's say, Central Otago Pinot Noir or, you know, Australian Shiraz, whatever, you pick it, um, you know, South African Steen, like mm. these all do go back to their reference point and the reference point is France. And so uh, there is, um, this is in no way against the, the innovation of everywhere else in the world, but there is a reason that when you talk to, to winemakers anywhere else in the world, they are all looking back to France unless maybe they grow Nebbiolo. <laughs> or oh, Sangiovese. Sangiovese or, or, or like Mencia. You know. Yeah, exactly. I, I liked also your idea that France for the last 20 years, at least the last 20 years, has been simultaneously destroying and recreating itself. I mean, it, you know, it's... What do you mean by that exactly? Is this is part of your theory that what is old is is new again in a sense? Yeah, and some of it is is that you know the 
the way in which the, the French wine industry is evolving, I would say, is not necessarily additive in that, um, if anything, like in volume, in a lot of ways, it's shrinking, um, which again, isn't bad, because what that means is that uh, France is simply a, a great fire hose of wine is starting to go away. Uh, and quite literally, if you're, say, looking looking at the Languedoc, but let's take a more salient example. Uh, if you look at Bordeaux, where they're talking about ripping out probably 10, 15, 16,000 hectares of vines because it's economically unsustainable. Mm. This isn't, this isn't like crappy Sauvignon Blanc grown in the Aero. This is Bordeaux. Mm. And so even in Bordeaux, the, you know, they're realizing that, that there is part, there are parts of the industry that simply need to be dismantled. Mm. Uh, and that, goes hand in hand in a way with the ability for new things to come along, which is that, uh, you know, there's, th th this is very much a transformation and it is not simply, uh, simply taking everything that's there and building on it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite a bit of the books given over to the natural wine movement. There's a whole chapter on Jules Chauvet, you know, the great progenitor really of, of, of the new Beaujolais that we talked about. I mean, how important has the natural wine movement been to this, this sense of renewal, this excitement that's happening in France at the moment? I think it is Im I think it is very important and nearly as important as it thinks it is. <laughs> That's difficult. <laughs> um, which is to say that that you know it has been a great catalyst for change. It is it is um, it is undoubtedly what has helped in many many places push forward the notion of what what contemporary wine is, what it should be, how you best express terroir, how you start to move away from that, that tinkering era, uh, and really get back to a much, uh, a much more, I don't want to say pure, that's a hard word, but, uh, a much clearer, more transparent view of how wine can express itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there's enormous work that's been done and that they are the, you know, the, 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 the natural winemakers, so to speak, are very much catalysts of that. At the same time, I truly did not want to get into this place in my book of being like, well, this is a natural wine and this isn't because um, natural wine is also maybe the most cliquish thing yeah. ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially in France where, where cliquishness is, is, is an art form. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there's there's so much good that has come out of it and there's so much progress that I think you can tie to it. At the same time, there is an enormous amount of, of laziness and misinformation and, and, uh, and taking sides uh, and kind of ganging up on people who, you know, aren't cool enough that, you know, I mean, I, it took a long time to write the natural wine chapter. Uh, it's very good. I have to say, yeah. The other chapter I loved, and there are the, all these wonderful essays that are spread throughout the book, particularly, obviously, in the first volume, because it's a two-volume book. And I love the one on the rise and fall of, of Appalachians. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing what, you know, Appalachians, uh, people think that they're, 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 you know, hundreds of years older. It's only 1935. And yeah. I, I just wonder, you know, are they still a good thing? Do they still have a place, a role to play? They do. Uh, and it's, it's, I, I would think I was very unequivocal at the beginning of that chapter and saying, you know, they are one of the great cultural creations of the Western world yeah. uh, and doubly so because they're aiming to protect culture in real time, mm. uh, which is a, a, a bold thing to try to do. Uh, at the same time, they, uh, they are deeply flawed. Uh, they have 
fallen, not they, it's, it's also hard to talk about Appalachians mm. as, as a uniform thing. There are many Appalachians that have fallen into a malaise um, because they are political. Uh, they are ultimately, to some extent, they are governed by local control. And so uh, there is, I mean, there is a, a national oversight body that sometimes works well and sometimes doesn't. But the French are often very good at creating rules that are overly rigid mm. uh, or rigid about the wrong things. And to some extent, what has happened with Appalachians is that the rigidity has taken the place of the values that Appalachians were meant to protect. And, and they've become a weapon. They've, they've like, literally, the, there are a lot of places in France where Appalachians have been weaponized against mm. vignerons who would, who's, who clearly believe in quality, but just don't necessarily think that, you know, a specific set of rules chosen by a very specific and fallible set of people uh, should be the the only way that you can pursue the, the you know, the, the, the great dream of terroir. Mm. Well, let's talk about terroir. I mean, that, there's no direct translation in English. We know that sense of place sometimes. I think Matt Kramer, I like his term, which is somewhereness. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And it's kind of central to, to French wine or what you call the myth of French wine, isn't it? Again, you know, do you think new farming methods, um, particularly things like gendered agriculture and biodynamics, uh, have made terroir more important and relevant than ever? Or is it a bit overrated? Uh, I do think that they've made it uh, certainly more accessible than ever in the sense that I think if you are interested in making, let's say, uh, uh, a shamble charm that tastes like shamble charm, mm -hmm. you now have a better pathway to accomplish that. And, uh, and I think that there is the good part of Appalachians is the rigor in actually ensuring that there is distinction at, at, at best, there is distinction to the Appalachians and to terroirs. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's still a very slippery slope, which is to say, you know, on the one hand, you can have the Appalachians of Burgundy, which are very rigorous, you know, very well managed and, and really, to which there's a deep commitment, which they're damn well better be given what those wines cost now. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you have something like Sancerre, which, you know, I think as long as it sort of vaguely tastes like Sauvignon Blanc, then it's fine. Um, but there's, you know, it is, it is an appellation that is very much trapped by the, the, um, the, the, the peril of production and volume. Big and, producers. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's just, I mean, you know, the, there, there, there traditionally has not been a lot of win in creating sort of a single, a single parcel mm -hmm. Sancerre and, and looking at the ways in which different soils express themselves and such and so on. It's, it's not that people don't know. It's not that there's not interest. It's just that, you know, look, if you're, if you're a vigneron in Sancerre, you have every reason in the world to be, you know, doing quick tank aged, mm -hmm. you know, selected yeast fermented mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. You know, make it quick, bang it out, put it in a mm. bottle, get it off on a pallet, because you will literally sell every last drop at whatever mm. price you wish to choose. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but but I, it's interesting. Ter terroir is, because perhaps it's so undefinable, I think it's mm. always the biggest target mm. in wine. I think that's uh, right. But I think if, what I would say is if you, if you don't believe in terroir, then there's no point in drinking French wine because mm. the entire concept of French wine hinges on this notion that yeah. it has special places mm. and those special places make unique wines. Yeah. yeah. 
I wanted to ask you which regions in France surprised you most. I mean, in, in a good way, not a bad way, when you were researching and writing the book. I mean, were there places you thought, hey, I didn't realise Corsica was so interesting or something like that? Uh, I didn't realize Corsica was so interesting. Um, it is an amazing place. I, I I don't know that I was surprised only because I didn't have any notion of what I would find, but I was I was delighted. Um, in terms of legitimately being surprised, I think the 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 two places that that where I really experienced that one was in Champagne. Uh, not that I didn't know that there was a lot of energy in Champagne, but I did not realize. And even now I'm still kind of gobsmacked at it, how much energy and how much change there is. And here's mm-hmm. a region that literally there is no other region, maybe Bordeaux, but not even Bordeaux, that has more, that has a better argument not to change mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they make, you know, they, they make money hand over fist. Mm-hmm. And yet there is, I, I literally, I can't keep up with it. I think Peter Lean can't keep up with it. Like there are so many new vignerons who are showing up and taking over their family's land. They're well-trained. They're moving into organics or biodynamics. They're doing single parcel wines. They're making fully ripe, complete base wines that don't require any chapitalization and, and really minimal uh, intervention to turn into champagne. Uh, and just, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, and I mean this with all love and respect, it's like champagne has turned into Burgundy in the sense that, yeah. you know, the, the complexity of what used to be, you know, pop it open for a celebration, mm-hmm. you know, hooray, moet, mm-hmm. uh, has just, it's, it's astonishing to me. And, mm-hmm. and it continues to astonish me. And, um, you know, I probably could have put twice the number of producers in. Wow. Um, and I think there already were like 90. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other place that was legitimately a real surprise was the Southwest, which... Mm-hmm. I thought I would sort of breeze through, might be a couple interesting things here or there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it was really a, a region that, uh, you know, was rustic, had always been mm-hmm. rustic, you know, couldn't find its, its path forward. And that is still very much true in a way. But I was really astonished when I went to Gayak, when I went to um, Kaur, certainly, which mm-hmm. I have been truly mean to over the years as a place speaking of Argentina that like doesn't know what it wants to be. Uh, you know, it's just like all, every, all, all that they can do in Cower is dream of Mendoza. So, uh, but uh, you know, could be, I mean, could be Jurançon, could be, uh, you know, even up in the Aveyron uh, and Marcia, you know, there's just these, 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 uh, these regions that have never really been given much consideration um, are making extraordinary wines and, um, and the part of it that became salient to me um, when researching the book was that um, <clears throat> this was, I mean, yes, whatever, they're, they're country wines, et cetera. But to a large extent, this was Bordeaux's fault. This was mm. Bordeaux literally um, committing restraint of trade for hundreds of years mm. and making sure that the key markets of the world would never drink much mm. Southwestern wine. They, they might get a little Bergerac, they might get a little bit of Gaillac, but on balance, they, you know, they were being... Uh, they were being squelched. They were, they were, they were, you know, they were being hidden from the world. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, France, France, French wine has this sort of unofficial hierarchy where people say, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux and, and Champagne and maybe the Northern Rhone to a certain extent um, are at the top of the pile and that the stuff down below doesn't really get the get the coverage that it deserves. But also people think, hey, those places can't produce world-class wines. We know they can. Do you think general consumers catching up with that and saying, hey, you know, I can get stuff that's stunning from, you know, Fronton or the Roussillon or, or the Beaujolais or the Jura, all those places, has that filtered down into mass consciousness, if we could call it that? Yeah, I guess I guess it's a question of what mass consciousness is, which, which, is, which is to say, you know, I, I mean, look, you know, in a mass consciousness, I don't think that I would have convinced the world what, you know, Puy Fumé is, even though they'd probably like it more than Sancerre. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is that I think that that consciousness has filtered filtered out more broadly. And to your question about the natural wine industry, I think that that really has a lot to do with it, which is to say that the the emerging consumer today just doesn't have the prejudices that their parents do, yeah. which is to say they're they're drinking Vin de France. And when you have a Richard Loire making some of the best Chenin Blanc in the world under Vin de France, it suddenly becomes very hard to absolutely insist mm-hmm. that it has to be in Vouvray or it has to be in Côte Whatever, yeah. 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 And, yeah. So, and so I think it's it's this this sense that, yeah, I mean, there's there's extraordinary terroir everywhere and there are so many vignerons who are actually managing to express it and bring it out and show the quality that's there. Uh, and I think, again, there's there's consumers that just don't, honestly, they, they can't afford what a lot of what would have been the references. They're not... You know, and we not, can't either these days. Well, I mean. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the, the steady diet... Buy his book so you can afford to drink Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the steady diet of Vujo uh, and, and and Hermitage and so on, like you know, no, no, no you know, those days no, are no gone. One, too. No one who is no one who is, no one who is gainfully employed in the wine trade uh, <laughs> is really drinking much of that uh, anymore. But so I think you know, I think consumers are are looking to to wherever there's quality, and I think I think there's so many people now who are delivering it and and you know the to the point of the appellation system the appellation system was always hinged on the notion that you had to be in an appellation to produce the greatest wines and that if you were in igp yeah. or god, god forbid in ben it's not true yeah yeah i mean one of the things and there's another very good essay in in the book in the first part of the book is about climate change and you describe it as the greatest threat facing French wine. And I think you're right, not just French wine. I think I think the global wine industry. How is the French wine map going to look in 50 years' time? We probably won't be around to see it, but I mean, um, I hope not, actually. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, what will it look like? Will, will, you know, will, will they be growing Grenache in, 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 in Burgundy, you know? So it's interesting. And, 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 and I, think, I think the way I described it was that it uh, was the greatest challenge. Um, mm. And... Which is to say, I I actually think there's enormous potential uh, in climate change, which is not something that I would tend to say about climate change and most anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be some extraordinary risks, uh, namely killing frosts uh, in Burgundy, Champagne, uh, other regions, which, you know, meaning every single year you stand at risk of losing your crop, uh, which is unreal. Um, but... Um, the uh i think that in 50 years the wine map of france is going to look very much the same i think there'll be some areas in the middle filled in i think there'll be some areas up north filled in which is to say if you read now about the 
the the budding Britain, Breton and Norman wine industries. Or Picardy or places like that. Yeah, right? and, you know, grow, I mean, literally like grapes growing in Saint-Malo and whatever, like, you know, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be some expansion, you know, up toward Lorraine, wherever, like, all, all of which is for the good. Um, you know, is, is there a great terroir there? I have no idea. Uh, but, you know, if, if people want to try, that's great. Um, but look, the, the, the fundamentals of where terroir is, uh, I don't think are going to change that much. And here's why. Most of the issues that climate change is going to bring are very distinctly viticultural, which is to say for a thousand or so years, the French had been farming with the belief that, you know, there was never enough sunlight. This was a marginal climate. Uh, they would never get ripeness. They would have to chaptalize. This was just French wine was built on on a deficit of, of photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. And then within, let's say, the past 10, 15 years, suddenly the complete opposite has been true. And there are plenty of places in the world. I mean, you, you cover most of them, not all of them. Where, like, where, where a, 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 an abundance of sunshine is just taken for granted. And so, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's Australia, South Africa, California, mm. you know, farmers all over the world have learned how to modulate ripeness and mm. learned how to, mm. uh, to slow things down, to use clones that don't ripen quite so fast, mm. uh, and to, to, to learn how to control, um, to control grape growing. And so I think the French will get there. There's just not many places, Roussillon, mm-hmm. handful of people in Bordeaux, uh, mostly researchers, um, maybe a few folks in their own who've even begun to think about how you grow essentially the complete in the, in the complete opposite of what you did for mm-hmm. centuries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think the French will get there without too much time. It's going to take some time. There's things that, will be lost. Uh, you know, uh, Keith Van Leeuwen is very adamant as probably the top climate researcher in Bordeaux that Merlot will not be viable on the right bank in mm-hmm. 30 years. Um, I have no reason to disbelieve that. Um, the interesting part is that the right bank used to mostly be Cabernet, so it would simply be going back to being Cabernet. Well, um, I mean, the French, have, as you said, are very practical in, in that sense, you know, and they're also, you know, empiricists, so they're, they're going to adapt to things, aren't they, as, as, as they, as, yeah, as they and, change, and, and they have done, I think. And, and, and honestly, you know, to, to, to the point of sort of the, the past holding lots of answers, you know, so many of the things that people are now starting to play with and tinker with and look at, you know, how do we diversify our cepage? How do we, you know, switch out, you know, one, one variety for another, et cetera. Like all of these things were, were done and considered and, and, and looked at and researched, um, in the 19th century, mostly prior to phylloxera. So, you know, it's, this isn't to say like, there's, you know, this is all old hat. I mean, there's lots of trial and error. There's lots of Mm -hmm. exploration, but, uh, I think, you know, the, the part of one of the reasons, or I would say one of the reasons I think France truly is the world's greatest wine culture is that so many of these ideas have been considered and prosecuted and worked through and, you know, a lot of them discarded, but that doesn't mean they can't come back. And so there's, you know, there's huge adaptability and I think far more than either we give them credit for, or frankly, than the French give themselves credit for, because they are so taken with their own legend. 
<laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic moment in which to end. Take it with their own legend, the adaptability, and, and in a sense, the, the, the endurability, if we can call that, wo- that word, of, of French wine. It's an amazing book. It's not just one book, it's two books. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of somebody who's produced something that, that brilliant. So many congratulations. I hope you're going to have a rest and not produce another book like that for the next well, nine years. <laughs> exactly. Have a great time in Paris. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Folks, buy the book. It's absolutely brilliant, called The New French Wine, and it's available through all good outlets, Buy it from your local bookstore, right? <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. Great to chat to someone who knows French wine so intimately. And I can't recommend John's book too highly. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Poland's first and only master of wine, the journalist Wojciech Bonkowski. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>